Dr. Jennifer Pierce on Singular XQ podcast. I'm delighted to introduce you today, Dr. Susan Weinschenk. She's a well-known behavioral scientist who has been working in products for a very long time and advising people at the top of Fortune 100 and the Fortune 500 on how to use behavioral science to create products that stick. We're really, really honored to have Dr. Weinschenk on this show today. And I'm going to be asking her five big questions and then asking her to talk about some things that are important to her as well. So welcome. Thank you again for doing this. Thank you very much, Jennifer, for having me. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your career path. That's my first big question, because I know a lot of people reach out to me. They hear that I had a career as an academic as a PhD in my area was in the subfield of cultural anthropology called performance studies. And so I get a lot of students wondering how I managed to leverage my academic training and my academic background and to get into this exciting field of digital product design and digital transformation. So I wanted to ask you, how did you end up from your academic career and what advice would you give to somebody who would like to take a PhD in the behavioral sciences or the social scientists and put it to good use in industry? I think one of the things that's really important is to have a lot of passion for what you do and to really know what it is you love, because I think that what you do with that, you have a lot of options. You know, I started out thinking I was going to be a professor in a college at a university and I was going to teach and I did. I did teach for about a year, but Right away when I started teaching, you know, I worked so hard for that PhD, was sure this was going to be my career. And right away, it was like, I don't like this. (laughs) I don't like teaching. And the reason I didn't like teaching at the time, because I love teaching and I do a lot of teaching of corporate workshops, teaching at conference workshops. I now am an adjunct instructor at the University of Wisconsin. So I do a lot of teaching. But when I started teaching, I was so passionate about my topic, behavioral science, psychology, cognitive science, how people think, how people learn, and nothing to do with technology really at the time. But I was so passionate about the topic that I was frustrated that, you know, I'm teaching college students and I'm a required course for them to get their degree and they're not that interested in it. And then I was like, I don't know, what the heck am I going to do now? I did a little bit of research at a university after that. And then I just said, I'm going to go into the the corporate world. And at the time, it was kind of interesting because I saw the connection between behavioral science and technology. I didn't know at the time that there was a career in that, that you could do that, that it had a name. Back then it was called, of all things, like man-machine interaction or human factors in computer systems. And then it became HCI, human-computer interaction. Then it became usability. Then it became user experience. And then I and other people in the field turned it around and pushed it into something called behavioral design, which did not exist when I was first getting into consulting, did not exist. So I think what's important is to know what you really care about and know what you love and know what you're passionate about and then be flexible. I was very determined I was gonna do this work. I was gonna, I was gonna work in the intersection between psychology, behavioral science, and technology. I just, that's what I wanted to do. 
And like I said, I started, I didn't even know that you could do that. I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know how to get a job doing it. But I was determined that I was going to do that because those were the things that I loved. And I thought it would be relevant and I thought it would be useful. And then I just flexed. I just checked things out. I tried this job. I tried that job. I mean, I pretty early on latched onto doing consulting as an expert in that field. I worked for another company for a while. Then I went out on my own because I'm one of those people that has a hard time working for other people. So I've been a consultant for a long time. But I think just be flexible and open and your career path can zig and zag. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know what's interesting, Jennifer? I think you have to figure out what is the story? What's the story that you can tell about why you went from this and then you went over there and then you went over there? Because you can probably weave a story that is true and believable. And if you did a lot of zigging and zagging, you might need to work for a while on the story. But I think you can. And I think if you're trying to get a job doing something, if you've got a good story that is authentic and at least makes some sense, I think not everyone's going to buy it, right? Some people are like, I want you to have graduated with this degree and then gone these three steps. But most people these days with, you know, so many jobs out there, most people are going to be flexible as long as the story makes sense. I advise students the same thing. You have to connect the dots for people. They'll understand how all of your experience uh, as an academic and in doing research or teaching connects if you just connect the dots for them. There are transferable skill sets and all of these things. And hopefully these social scientists, uh, the, the sciences that we study, we study them because they have real life applications, right? And so that's what we're doing. We're making good on that and we're applying it to real life. In studying the anthropology of performance, I was also studying the anthropology of the performance of many things, cultural objects of all kinds. And that led very naturally coming to uh, my graduate studies in the 90s to a study of products, right? Digital products, because we're in the middle of this massive transformation, which brings me to my next big question for you. Okay. So you mentioned that you've been a consultant for a long time. How many yeah. years, if you don't asking, is that? And how oh much is it? <laughs> Well, you know, even when I worked for another company and didn't have my own business, the other companies I worked for were consulting agencies. So I guess I can say that pretty much I've been doing consulting my entire career, you know, maybe with the exception that, you know, I'm an adjunct professor at the university. That's not consulting. But otherwise, I've been doing consulting for, you know, I was just updating my curriculum vita for the university this morning, and I was trying to calculate the number of years. So let's just say over 35 years I've been doing consulting. So I think that's a long time. And for me, it's about 25 years. Yeah. So uh, it, you, it's the same time span in the sense of what has changed, right? Yeah. So, can you talk so what that? has changed in what way? Like you said, when we first came in, people like us were being placed in a field called human factors. Or, yes. You know, we already a sort of intuition in the underground that we needed to develop. Don Norman came out with his his book and his ideas and the term UX around 1995, right? But people still weren't, uh, didn't really attach to that until much later. And at that point, it was human factors, which I think kind of evolved out of this, you know, engineers working and people yes, realizing it did. Yep. that 
that there's a gap, a skills gap, that people who had skills to build products may not have the same skills to understand how to market those products and make those products stick. So that's kind of like the space I found myself in, in, in yeah. as both an artist and an anthropologist. They thought that I would be well-suited to, to those human factors that the engineers couldn't really yes. get on themselves. So what have you seen? Uh, oh, yeah, the changes have been huge. And when I get egotistical, which happens probably too often, I like to think that I was instrumental in some of those changes, too. Possibly I was. Possibly it's just that we were all facing the same things at the same time, and we we all made decisions to move forward in the same way. You know, when I first started working in the field, there were very few consultants doing this. And in fact, I am not kidding. I could count on two hands the external consultants that were working in this field of, you know, human factors in digital products and services. There were more people than that doing it. They were like inside employees of like, you know, IBM and Honeywell and that kind of thing. But in terms of an external consultant that you would bring in, there were very, very few of us. And you might think, oh, well, that's a great thing. You know, you had a lot of work and we did have a lot of work, right? But actually, as so one of the changes is that, you know, there's now not a hand, two handfuls. There's thousands and thousands of people doing this work. And yet, there's more work than ever. You know, I'm busier now than I was 35 years ago. So I think a couple of changes. One is that as it did begin to be understood that if you were going to design products and services that people could use and wanted to use, you needed to understand human behavior. You needed to understand individual psychology, group psychology, anthropology, behavior in context, behavior in situation, you know, the whole, everything that we do became very important. And this realization that machines are not people. And if you design an efficient machine, it doesn't mean people are going to use it or going to want to use it or going to be able to use it or going to purchase it. So that kind of big, you know, explosion of understanding meant, you know, uh uh-oh, we need one of these people, whatever they're called, usability, user experience, human factors, anthropology, whatever, we need them, right? So that's one big change is just that there were so many more people that were needed. And, you know, I remember years ago when I first started teaching people in the workplace about, let's just say, usability, user experience, we were teaching programmers and developers because they were the ones that were designing the interfaces and the interactions. I still remember the moment at which I said to myself, nope, we can't do that. We need specialists. We need people who are the only thing they have to do is pay attention to the user experience. Because before that, there weren't specialists. Then there became specialists. That was a big change. So I think those are some of the really big changes that have happened. And there's one other big change that I think is significant, possibly for the audience you're talking about, and that's very recent. So research user research, user experience research, behavioral design research, uh, it's always been critical and one of my favorite things. But it used to be at first very rare that I could talk a client into spending time and money on it. And so it was design, 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 right? And maybe some testing. And in the last two years, 
user research has exploded. And uh, you know, we do um, a fair amount of uh, staff augmentation where we place people, place contractors with our clients. And for the last year, all the requests are for user research. Can you get us some people who can help us do user research? I mean, it's like that is just exploding. And that's exciting because, right, that's the, you know, that's the social sciences, right? How do you observe people? How do you interview people? How do you draw out insights from what you learned? How do you apply those insights? That just, I think, grows the possibilities for people who come from a social science background. I agree. And I have experienced this firsthand in my own career trajectory that my price tag has gone up enormously in the past two years. Whereas throughout, I've been always trying, they always understood people who would hire me for jobs, always understood that I had this PhD and also an arts background and that it somehow informed what I did. But I was constantly advocating for a more proper research approach to things. And just like you, no time, no money. That's way too much work. You don't have to do that much work. Just, you know, make the decision. Use or maybe we'll do that later on. We'll get into that. Yeah. Or, you know, talk to the marketing department. They've done a marketing survey. Use right. That, right. right. So, so, and then it completely switched. And, you know, I have a theory just to take a little airtime myself. My theory is, is that the pandemic really accelerated this because during the pandemic, there was more time for people to develop products. So more things went to the market in the past two years than they have in any previous measurable time period. And they're failing. (laughs) So I think people are starting to get the message that it's the research that actually um, saves time and money in the long run. But to your point, we are actually internally rebranding our research practice as data-driven experience because it actually seems to not trigger that same response, not enough time, not enough money, because data has a big price tag on it lately and people will, you know, talk to you more freely about it when you, when you bring the word data into it. Yeah. But that's really interesting. That is exactly my experience of the past two years. And I'm glad to me, there was a a moment where my phone started ringing constantly where I was usually getting into a traditional UX role or a tradition design role in some way or another, sometimes a creative director or whatever. And here I was dying to apply my academic background and my research practice to what I was doing. And all of a sudden people were calling me up specifically for that. I would have to make it for myself inside whatever company I was in. And then people were calling me up specifically for that. And it's it's so true and it's very exciting. Really fun, isn't it? Yeah. 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 No longer have to make the argument, right? Right. That it's understood. Well, wonderful. Okay. So my third big question here is, so when you get called in to solve problems, I'm sure you see patterns of repeating problems that you get called in to solve over and over again. What is the single most repetitive problem that you get asked to address? Wow. That's a really tough question. I have to say that it actually varies a lot. It varies a lot. I don't know if I have a single repeating. I guess if I look at what are the patterns lately, and I think this is, well, I don't know if this is a trend or not, but lately I've been getting called in to help mentor the people they already have. So, you know, people come at our field from a lot of different backgrounds and many of the firms I work with, you know, people that they have on staff have, you know, masters in human factors. I mean, they're quite well educated and, or they have five to 10 years of experience doing the work. So it's not like they're junior people in any way. But 
it's such a big field, what we do. The body of knowledge is huge. It's huge. And it really does take like an entire career to even begin to say, oh, I think I've mastered much of this body of knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even going to say I've mastered the body of knowledge. But because of that, it means that every organization is going to have really good people doing really good work, but they're gaps. You know, there's things that they don't have experience in that for that particular product they're working on, perhaps, or that particular company and the industry they're in, or for a variety of reasons, it's like, I think we need to mentor these people and, you know, fill in the gaps that are in that body of knowledge. To me, that's a really progressive organization that recognizes that even if we hire the best people, they're not going to know everything. And also, uh, there's just one client I'm thinking of as I'm saying this, you know, they've have got an excellent UX group. I mean, they're really good, but they have these very backgrounds, you know, someone who's been with them for 12 years, but doesn't have the master's in HCI, you know? So the question is, how can we take the people we have and take them up another level? How can we get them the particular skills that they need for this particular project? So that's one pattern or one trend that I'm seeing. And then the other big one, I guess, the other big one is I think people are very fascinated by this question of the intersection of behavioral science and design, and they want to bring that into their product. And at first, I think, I think they think they know what it means and how to do it. And then once they start, it's like, I don't know how to do this, right? Should we do this? Or should we do this? Or should we do this? Or should we do this? I mean, it's like, the, it's like, oh, and so they want guidance on how do we do this? You know, how do we design with behavioral science in mind? What does the science say about what we could or should be doing in order to make this product, whatever it is you need it to be, more engaging, have more people buy it, have more people use this feature. I mean, whatever whatever your behavioral design problem or, or interest is. I think people are interested in it, but they don't really know how to do it. And that's what we do a lot of, is teaching what is behavioral design and how to do it. You know, it, it's really interesting that, that you bring that up because as teachers too, we're really well equipped to do that kind of work, right? And even though I don't get formally called in to do that, I actually end up doing that because I may get called in to say, that, well, let's, let's establish our research practice internally. And I begin to do that. But then I realize that the best thing to do is, you know, give a man a fish, he eats for a day, teach a man a fish, he eats for a lifetime, right? Let's, yeah. let's, form these these junior UX. Well, a lot of times, you know, since 2018 in the Kinsey Report, people began repurposing people from marketing departments. They come from a marketing background and it kind of transfers, but not entirely. There's very, right. how you do the research. And so, but what I really find is they will understand the concepts really well, but not how to leverage it into the right. Right. Exactly. What do I do? <laughs> yeah, I, I can. And, and so what's so useful about your book, a hundred things is that I can use them as, I don't know if you're familiar with the term from Marshall McLuhan, but the probe he used to like put out these little aphorisms and use it as a yeah. probe. 
they use the concepts in that book or laws of UX or any kind of uh, behavioral principle that we use in UX as a probe. So just for this one product, let's take this one idea and put it out there on the table and let's think about it and, and think about how we can actually like, let's iterate or ideate on how we can use this. Yeah. How would you advantage. leverage that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then like, it's like doing scales. Like, so we've learned this one scale. Okay. So now let's do this. Other. And when, when, then we can start mixing matching, you know, and that's when it gets really exciting when people start to, because I think they really have to do practice putting into their design work because most designers, I, I know the best ones are very intuitive people. And it's like that model of thinking fast and slow, right? They think fast really well. They have really good hunches and intuitions about the right direction to go in. But then how do you step back and do that little slower computation about yes. there's this principle out there. How do I make that affect my intuitions so that what comes out is a merging of those two like thought right. systems? Right. I'm doing all kinds of uh, mentorship myself and formation. And, and and it's interesting also to see the people who really get excited about doing UX research. And then they sit for a while doing qualitative data analysis. And then they think, I don't think this is for me. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> that's the other need I see is to learn how to sit with qualitative data in a structured way. That's great. Okay. Fourth big question. Of all of the things in your hundred things every designer should know, are there several that people really attach to you and you see them really being able to leverage in their design process? Okay, so there's a, it's kind of a, a two-part answer. I think there's some things in there that they get the idea of and go, oh, you know, like they have an aha moment. But mm-hmm. some of those, I think, are the hardest to actually implement. <laughs> So there's that divide, what we were just talking about, between understanding why that, for instance, I'll give you an example. You know, I talk in the book about mental models and they go, yeah, yeah, I see why that's really important. But designing a conceptual model to match the user's mental model is the hardest part of design, in my opinion. I'm working with a client right now who gets it and said, okay, we want to change our UX process so that we're doing this thing. We're really addressing mental models. And I said, okay, well, you know, put on your seatbelt because this is the hardest thing I teach. So I think sometimes the things that people like the most from the book are maybe some of the hardest to actually implement. Another one, though, that's easier is just the understanding human memory and how that affects what you do and understanding some basics of visual processing you know, those are ones that people really grab onto that are then actually pretty easy to, to implement once you understand what's going on. I'll pick one more, which would be, sometimes people ask me, name five things from the hundred things that are your favorites. And that's like, that's like telling you which of my kids is my favorite kid. <laughs> I love them all. The other one that I think really stands out is about unconscious mental processing. So much of the stuff that's even in the book is not conscious. It's all happening unconsciously. And that's fascinating and also a little problematic if you're trying to do research. It's like, okay, so how do we understand what's going on unconsciously? It's an interesting, interesting concept. And also, I think, just like the mental model, very, very hard to leverage into practice. You might be able to make a good hypothesis about what's going on, but then how do you use that to shape your product is a whole different question. So last big five questions. 
if you could tell the UX field, stop doing this thing and start doing this thing, what would you say? I think something that always happened, but maybe even happens more now than it did 35 years ago, is designing small bits out of context. Yeah, this got really pushed with the whole agile methodology and and the idea that we're just going to design small parts and they're independent and they can be shipped out. And so we want you to design the user experience of this little piece over here. And I understand agile from an engineering implementation point of view, but it is problematic from a user experience point of view. And there are things you can do to mitigate that problem. Some firms do and some firms don't. So I would say stop designing little pieces out of context and do the conceptual model design that you really need to do. I know they like to point to, yeah, but you know, I'm sure when Uber developed their app, they did it in an agile way. Yes and no, (laughs) right? You can say you're, you're going to design a little piece and put it out there, and that's great. But if you do that, when you discover conceptual model problems, you got to go fix them. I love that answer so much. I feel like the reason I was put into this field is to solve the problem of human-centered design and agile. Because I actually, Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and it's a very big, powerful frameworks that have a lot in common, but are also have a lot of tension, as you just described. And I've noticed exactly that, that if you do that small slice where you try to sort of step along with the entire development process and have a small slice of the user experience in every ticket, that infuses it all the way through. That's nice. However, you get to the end with with an incomprehensible user flow. Mishmash. Yes. And then even the engineers are going, well, there's these edge cases and this is not making sense. And even the engineers are coming to the designers and we're like, we're doing the best we can, right? So I've started doing with our team, we have something called the jumpstart. So we do that sort of Google style sprint beforehand. It could be three weeks, it could be 12 weeks and we get out ahead and we're working alongside a a tech flow where we're starting to do that big visioning of the product and we're starting to slice it up and we're starting to do all of these different things. But then we like to go out into the development process and infuse that process like three to four sprints ahead, right? Yeah. So that we can stay out ahead of development and throw user stories back in in a much more logical and holistic way for us. Because if we're not able to do that whole, we always get user flow problems. That is exactly. And there's screens that are missing. There's not even just user experience, but just basics like we're missing screens. How did that happen, right? Because you're not looking at the whole experience. Yes. Right. So it's been really fun. I've been doing it with various levels of success in, in different environments, but at MindTree, we're really working on developing that process. With yeah, very it's wonderful. Things. Yeah. So um, I'm going to open the floor up to you now. Tell me what's exciting in your life right now. What are you working on that has you really excited? And Oh, I'm always working on stuff and I'm always excited about it. So it's sometimes hard to narrow it down. I continue to do the mentoring that we're, that I'm doing with various clients that always has me excited. I'm actually taking an online course in artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science, because I really want to understand that more and on a deeper level. And I really want to understand what are the intersections of that with behavioral design and user experience. 
So I think that is exciting. We are always working on new courses. We have a whole series, serieses of online video courses. And we went through a big production phase of redoing some of our courses that had been around for a while and then coming up with some new courses. And those are all redone and all out there. So now we're taking a look at, okay, what's next? You know, what's the next set of training that we want to put together? We have not decided that yet, but I look forward to that. Uh, to our listeners, I'm going to ask uh, Susan for a link to those courses so that you can look at them yourselves. I've taken a couple of them myself and they're fantastic. So I highly recommend them. So I'll ask you one last thing. I'll sneak in one under the Go ahead. Which, which is, do you have any initial insights about artificial intelligence and data science and how it's interacting with behavioral science? Because I'll tell you the truth, we're very interested in that in MindTree, very interested in exploring it ourselves. And I just I wonder what your first insights are as you're thinking. Yeah, well, I'll give you two quick insights. First of all, I'm not far enough along in learning to really say, but the reason I decided to get into it in the first place, besides just, I don't know, I'm always curious, is that I have believed for a couple of years now, a couple of things around this. One is that I think the AI will be doing a lot of the work that UX people currently do now. I was giving talks four years ago saying, hey, if you are a young person, yeah, if you're not going to retire in the next 10 years, then you better pay attention because at some point, and I don't know exactly when, machines will be designing interfaces. Humans will not. So then what are the humans going to do? Well, you know, the research is going to be really hard for machines to do. And just knowing what questions to ask about the product, about the people, about the behavior is going to be the most important thing. So I'm fascinated with how far is artificial intelligence and machine learning going to go and how can we help it so that when the machines are designing, they're designing things that are usable, but also then how far will AI and machine learning go? What will still need to be done by humans? I'm really fascinated with that. You know, the rule of thumb is if the human can do it in less than a second, then the machine can do it now. It's like, okay, but we're at a very early stage. So what happens 10 years from now is that if the machine could if the human can do it in less than an hour, can the machine do it? And what does that mean for us? So I've just always been interested in this intersection of humans and machines. And I think this area where the machines are, you know, thinking <laughs> and creating and producing is going to be just a really, really interesting one. And I don't think that means that if you're a UX person, you won't have a career in 10 years. But I do think it means the work that you're doing day to day might be very different. You know, we might not be doing mock-ups, prototypes, even running the user tests or even analyzing the user tests, right? The machines might be doing it. Humans do complicated thought and humans are emotional. And those are the two places that I don't think the machines are going to be doing, at least not in my lifetime. So I don't know. I'm fascinated. I'm just starting to explore the boundary. The other thing I think that I've learned 
this happened just two days ago. The instructor in the online course said, here's the process for doing machine learning. You want to do a machine learning project? Here's the process. Step one, step two, step three. You want to do an AI project? Here's the process. Step one, step two, step three. And I thought, wow, he says that with such confidence and you believe him. And if you wanted to now do a machine learning project, there's no way you're going to do anything except what he said. Why doesn't that happen with UX? Like we say, here's the process. You know, like you were talking about agile, right? Here's the process. Just step one. And as soon as we say that, we kind of know or think everyone's going to argue with us. No, that's not the problem. You know, it's like, I'm telling you, this is the pro. I'm the expert. This is the process. Don't mess around. I don't know. Like, why do we believe him about that's the process for machine <laughs> learning project? But nice. I've got 35 years of experience and you won't believe me about this is the way to do design yeah. or UX. So I something about that. It's like, I got to think about that some more because I want people to just, I, if we say this is the process, I want them to go, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so many things you said there resonated with me. This last one, especially because I work with my teammate, Dimitri Knapp, and we are operationalizing both design and research. And it's very easy for us to operationalize research because people sort of respect that I'm the authority and this is how you do it and that I have that training. But when we try to operationalize design, sometimes it's hard to find the line between what's research and what's design, because as I always say designing is research, right? Every design is an hypothesis. Yeah. Right? And you're going to get feedback when you put it out into the world, whether it's on a, a piece of paper or as a clickable prototype or whatever, you're going to get feedback about it and then you learn. And I think it's because of that intuition thing. Designers have a tendency to want to work intuitively and that they feel that something interferes with it if it's broken down into a process. I have the same challenge all the time, you know, like, or the feeling of oppression that comes into the room if you want to systematize or operationalize <laughs> somehow you're killing their inner light, <laughs> right? So it's very interesting. And I could probably invite you back just to talk about that. Uh, and then the other thing is that when I was in graduate school, uh, I always look for to, to do more work because I'm crazy that way. And I went into the history and philosophy and science department at University of Pittsburgh and took a, a dual course of study in artificial intelligence and uh, emotion theory. This was about 15 years ago. So yeah, wow. we were talking about passionate engines. What is the problem with emotions? Yeah. And I my specialized area of research was the overlap of performance studies in this, which is why did humans emote for fictions and performances? Why do we watch a dancer and weep? Why do we read Anna Karenia and weep? Why do we watch Queen Hecuba on the stage, like they say in Hamlet, and weep? Because we know it's a lie, right? And that question is an onion that you could peel back. There's so many different right. aspects. And if we can't figure that out, we're never going to have intelligent machines, truly intelligent machines. From there, I went into a sentiment analysis in industry, in the banking industry, where we were at the beginning of social media, we were trying to do figure out how, what are we going to do with this social data, right? And, and trying to use Boolean logic to query these things, where Boolean logic does not understand sarcasm, for example. Right, right. right. So, and we're still, natural language programming has developed quite a bit since then, which was maybe four years ago that I was doing that work. But still, we have that issue of now... We've gone really far in AI with visual data, but still not with this emotional right. behavioral data, right? 
And so I, I've also been talking about not only the automation of UI, but that UI as a practice is going away. It's becoming ambient and not, there's like NUI, which is minimal user interface. And so as UX professionals, we need to get really nimble and flexible really fast because as that begins, it's already here. It's going to take a while to, to catch on. But when that does, these wireframes are going to kind of look like the brick phone, right? So <laughs> it's going to be so right. I'm right with you. We really have to scale up very quickly. And I also agree with you that I believe that in AI, in design, somebody needs to research the algorithm that are going to produce these diseases. Oh yeah, that's the part that fascinates me. Well, thank you so much. We should do it again. And we're really, really thrilled that you're one of our first guests on this show. 